So this evening I do want to talk about loving kindness or metta practice um, and the opening of the heart, how the heart opens, how loving kindness practice transforms us. First I want to say a few words about the process of transformation in this particular practice. It happens gradually. I think you may have got that by now. It's like in that, uh, I don't know whether it's a New Yorker cartoon or uh, some cartoon where there are two monks sitting next to each other in the hall and one monk says, the teacher says, it won't be totally quick. We should pack a lunch. (laughs) (laughs) And This practice works in a gradual way. Sometimes it's likened to change in becoming wet that occurs in a drizzle rather than just a downpour in a storm. And I think you get the sense, both in the mindfulness practice and in the loving-kindness practice, that it really happens by repetition. Moment after moment after moment after moment. Sometimes we would not like it, to be such. We would like immediate change now on my timetable, definitely by the end of the retreat. We don't give uh, money-back guarantees at Spirit Rock. (laughs) So I guess you better be patient. Uh, But it really does happen by repetition And it's mysterious how it works. We keep on repeating the act of being mindful or the act of just knocking on the door of the heart. And over time, things seem to occur. Over time, there is transformation, but it's mysterious. We look at a particular pattern of mind. It's a big aha moment sometimes to notice, oh, this is how my mind works. I have maybe, I have a a strong self-judgment that I notice kind of behind the scenes that's somewhat expecting me not to do well. You know? And I notice that. And, so, and it can be a, um, a revelation, very important uh, noticing. And yet, um, sometimes we have to notice that 500 times or we have to notice it for five years. We have to keep noticing in all different contexts, on the cushion, and with our friends, with our partners at work and so forth, we have to keep noticing it. And something happens over the period of the noticing that in which there shifts occur. And it may be, uh, it may be that we notice, oh, as I study it more, I start to notice this is the kind of situation in which that voice appears. And I start to say, I start to see, oh, I'm going to that situation this afternoon. Let me look out for that voice so it doesn't disable me. And I keep noticing it like that. And then maybe I've noticed it enough so that I can really see, oh, when that starts to kick in, I've noticed it enough so I see the patterns and I notice, oh, when that voice comes, it leads to other thoughts which kind of take me over. And if I notice it near the beginning, I can say, no, I don't want to go there. And I can, something else can happen. 
And that might be the fruit of a thousand noticings with a particular pattern. And it's mysterious how that works. And we may be confused and stuck on the 999th noticing. And with a thousand, something just opens up. It's mysterious. It works something like that. Same thing with loving kindness. We can be practicing the loving kindness over and over again. And sometimes it can't, we don't feel anything. Sometimes it feels like we're going through rote process. And then at a certain point, something happens. It's mysterious. True story of myself. When I did my first loving kindness retreat about uh, 20 years ago, and I did it on my own without instructions particularly, although I had books, you know. But I, and I, and I had had some instruction in the past, but I was doing a self-retreat. And I would have to say I didn't have the greatest instruction. There, it was my own, and it was not as good as could be found elsewhere. And, um, but nonetheless, I was doing the practice, and I, was, I did it for the better part of a week. And I, had been, I was on a, a longer retreat, so I had been practicing quite a few weeks before that. And I didn't think the metta, didn't feel like anything dramatic was happening. I was just repeating it. I had a lot of general faith and confidence, so I kept on doing it. It seemed to generally put me in a better mood, <laughs> but nothing dramatic. And I was saying, eh, I don't know about this. Maybe, maybe I'm not a meta guy or something like that. And um, you know, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm a penetrating wisdom kind of guy. <laughs> Maybe I'll just stick to the wisdom part. And, um, and so I was doing the metta, and right near the end, not during the formal metta, but I think it was as I was um, cleaning up after breakfast, I just heard myself say, I love you. And I was surprised. I was, I was very touched. And um, it just happened like that. Oh, it's mysterious, right? Where did that come from? Some relationship to the metta. And Sharon Sharon Salzberg, who is now one of the great teachers of loving kindness, the teacher of Sylvia Borstein, who's probably the most beloved teacher of loving kindness here at Spirit Rock and my, my mentor in loving kindness. And Sharon Salzberg tells kind of a similar story. She was her doing her first loving-kindness retreat. I think it was, must have been on her own. And it, it felt kind of dry and wasn't clear it was going anywhere. But she was doing it. And she had to, uh, she, I think she was doing probably similarly about a week. And she had to bring her uh, retreat to a uh, close after, I think, just four, four days because... Um, she was living at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, and there was some kind of conflict that was occurring, and she was needed, her abilities as a, what, peacemaker or someone to help with the situation uh, was needed. And so she ended her metta retreat and said, I don't know about this metta, this person who will be one of the great metta teachers in the country, she said, I don't know about this metta. And she, um, she was a little bit in a hurry, and she knocked over a vase, and she, she found herself saying immediately, you're such a klutz, but I love you. <laughs> you know? Uh, the critical voice started, and then, as it were, in mid-sentence, something shifted. 
And so, that may may have some impact. It's mysterious. And so, just to remember that that this whole process of transformation is based on repetition, and it's mysterious. It does require patience. Um, many of us have a lot of understanding, and maybe we've had experiences in which we've seen the transformation. Those are very, very valuable because they really give us some understanding and some uh, faith. And different ones of us work in different ways. Some of us, understanding can go a long way. Some of us, it's more heartfelt. It's more like we really have seen how this works, or we maybe we we trust our teachers or our friends or our fellow members of the community and we've seen shifts there or we have felt a certain kindness or understanding. So it's mysterious what keeps us doing this, what keeps us there. But it's important to just stay there even when things are hard. And I think from the interviews I know that today um, um, there's been a shift of kinds uh, for... for um, quite a few people that there's some, uh, some kind of movement, you know, and I'm, I'm, I want to be sensitive saying this, that I'm not, those of you who don't feel such a shift say, oh, I must, must not be talking about me, <laughs> you know, so uh, maybe I'll just not say too much more there, but it's, uh, but the process does, it's, there's a tendency, and you may have felt this, to settle down some or something, just the continual moments of attention, some effect, you know. Generally, human beings are slow learners, but moment after moment after moment has an effect, and that's the nature of this practice. It is not a hugely dramatic practice where we walk over coals, you know, and we build ourselves up for a few moments of something very dramatic. There are transformative ways which work that way more, or we don't climb a mountain that's very demanding, or we don't um, go on a, you know, a dramatic uh, fast or, or a vision quest, which can have a lot of drama. But we really just stay moment to moment with the, um, with the process. And that, that's, that's the way this works. You know? and, and we, uh, if we're interested in this, we have to be, in a way, in it for the long haul. And we have to have those qualities of patience and balance and equanimity, and uh, wisdom. And then also the continual opening of the heart. And that's what I want to focus on a little more tonight, is the quality of loving kindness, quality of uh, what we call metta, again, related etymologically to words for friend, friendliness, kindness, goodwill, wishing well. It's that, that quality. We sometimes translate it as love, but it, it's more love in the sense of really that sense of kindness and warmth and friendliness. As I mentioned, Sylvia Borstein talks about metta as casting a spell of kindness. It's that learning to come from a place of kindness towards ourselves and towards others. And in a sense, we have to train for it. Metta is... Um, very interesting and unique among the uh, different world religions and being this systematic way of cultivating kindness. And there are also practices which we'll explore later in the retreat to develop compassion or joy. And we can uh, 
we can use those practices to really strengthen the, the quality of metta or joy or compassion. And it's helpful also to remember that a few things, that we're exploring metta, especially on this retreat, as the main, what we might call heart practice, the main practice that in a sense helps us to open the heart. I'm talking on this retreat about balancing, cultivating clear seeing and opening the heart. And it could appear as if mindfulness gets the clear seeing and metta gets the opening the heart. And that's not quite accurate, as I've mentioned. And I think we can find this in the the text and the practices that mindfulness practice, of course, very much can open the heart as well. can open the heart through interest and awe and uh, a sense of inquiry, a sense of wonder. That can open the heart. It can open the heart by being with what's difficult or painful and learning to uh, be with that and feel how being with discomfort or pain or difficulty, our own or that of others, tends to open the heart. So just the mindful presence to what's difficult will tend to open the heart as well. And similarly, when we do loving-kindness practice, there's a lot of insight, wisdom, mindfulness that naturally develops. And so they are really integrated in that way. And one of the ways that we can also see that is that the practice of loving-kindness historically occurs in the context of what are called the Brahma-vihara, or the divine abode. Brahma is the name of the king of the gods, and vihara means um, home or dwelling. It's, it's a word that's chanted in our, when we, in our chant that we do um, at the end of the evening. You can see those words, like vihara, will appear on that, in that chant. And uh, these divine abodes could be called the stations of the heart. They're loving kindness, compassion, uh, joy, and equanimity. And they're really different qualities of the heart. Loving kindness is the quality of the heart. Just that very basic wishing well, when the situation is kind of neutral and we're wishing well to ourselves and others. It's a basic quality of the heart. It's like that story I told of Kalu Rinpoche knocking on the windows of the Boston Aquarium just to wish well. And it can be, and I'll mention, it can be a way that we live in the world. And there's the quality of compassion, which is really that open heart, the same energy as metta when we encounter pain or suffering. It becomes compassion. Loving kindness becomes compassion in the presence of what's difficult or painful, where there's suffering. Where there's beauty or um, someone else's happiness or joy or just the happiness of the lizards or the deer or the turkey around here, there can be a joy that opens up. A joy that is, again, it's the same quality of the heart, but it's what the heart feels when there's beauty or joy or happiness, ourselves or others. When the mature heart is around someone else's happiness, there's a resonance and we feel happy. 
And yet these are also practices. We have to, we develop these ways. And then the last, equanimity, brings in the wisdom factor, brings in the clear seeing factor. And the equanimity is, we could say, the heart that can hold everything. It's the heart that can hold, in a balanced way, the what in Chinese tradition is called the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. It can hold all of that with some balance. And that's the context in which loving kindness is practiced. Sometimes in Western settings, we practice loving kindness as if it's the only heart practice. And that's a little bit off in the, really in the classical understanding. It's really practiced in this context where it's totally linked with uh, the wisdom dimension through its relation with equanimity. And in fact, mature loving kindness has the qualities of compassion and joy and equanimity within it. I may talk about, give a whole talk to that theme uh, later in the week. I'll have to see. So what's the spirit of loving kindness? What are we cultivating? I want to maybe read a poem and tell a story. Um, Maybe a poem first. This is from an Irish poet named John O'Donohue. Some of you may know his work. It's called, uh, there's some Irish words in here. It's called uh, Bianacht, which means blessing which is really what loving kindness is. We could say that it's the continual offering of blessings without needing to hold on to what the effects of the blessings are. We just say, may I be happy. It's a kind of a blessing on myself. May my benefactor, or we can name the person, may John be happy, be safe, and so forth. These are blessings. So this is his poem which is really a poem. He doesn't, I think, know anything about Buddhist practice. I may be wrong, but I don't imagine so. But this is really a loving-kindness poem. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the gray window and the ghost of loss gets into you, May a flock of colors, indigo, red, green, and azure, blue, come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the kurak of thought and the stain, a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, may there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. Could be said of loving kindness, those last words. May a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. Maybe I'll post this poem later. Just this quality of kindness. There's a wonderful uh, compilation which I got, which was one of these things sent around the internet, which also expresses the quality of love. And it it was uh, uh, a group of professional people posed a question to a group of four to eight-year-olds, what does love mean? 
And they hear these answers. Of course, it's from the internet, so I don't know that it was some, you know, retired postal worker in Schenectady, New York, just churning these out. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> we'll have to. It sounds like if if it if it's. If it is a retired postal worker, it has, has a lot of intuition about children, let's put it that way. So, uh, so I'll just read a few of these that, that really also express the, the sense of loving kindness. Billy, age four. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know your name is safe in their mouth. It, it kind of reminds me, as I was mentioning, some of my friends and students are teaching uh, in the public schools of Oakland, and they say some of what the people, the students come up with is just totally amazing. You know, eight, nine years old who are studying mindfulness in the schools, and they come up with these total gems and you know, makes people who never believed in past lives think, oh, my God, we've got a, you know, a, some advanced yogi is... <laughs> it's reincarnated in Oakland to come through this program. <laughs> you know. So um, here's another one. Mary Ann, age four. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. One more. Karen, age seven. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. And maybe one, one story that, for me, really expresses beautifully this quality of loving kindness. And it was a story I heard from my mother first time. It's about a woman named Shirley Chisholm. Does anyone know who Shirley Chisholm is? Yeah. Um, she was um, an African-American member of Congress who was the first African-American woman to run for president, which she did in 1972. And um, I met her quite a few times because I was, um, when I was in college, um, I had a summer position working in the U.S. Congress, kind of a past life experience. So I worked in the U.S. Congress for a summer, and I met her quite a number of times. And she's only like, she's 4'10", or she was. She was 4'10", very, very... um, very strong woman. I think there was a beautiful film that was made of her life that you can probably find on Netflix or whatever. <laughs> you get that. And this is a story I heard from my mother who, who um, found it, I think, uh, in, was told in the week after she died, which I think was about two years ago. And it's a story that came from the 1972 presidential campaign when she was running for president And one of the other candidates, I think this was, I guess, the Democratic primary, and George McGovern eventually won that primary, or won the, um, yeah, became the nominee. And another another of the uh, candidates was George Wallace. And at that time, George Wallace had been, I think, what, the um, governor of Alabama and was one of those arch foes of desegregation, a very strong, strident voice. And 
he was running in 1972 and a lot of people thought that he was really gathering kind of the reactive, um, not always so hidden racist vote. You know? And um, uh, during, and so Shirley, here's Shirley Chisholm, the first African-American woman ever to run for president. And during that campaign, some of you know, there was an assassination attempt on um, George Wallace. And he was shot and he was actually, he survived, but he was paralyzed for the rest of his life. And um, right away, Shirley Chisholm um, went to the hospital to visit him. I really think that spirit of metta, that spirit of loving kindness, very much with her. And when he first saw her, he said, your people aren't going to like that you're here. You know, I bet you your people aren't going to like that you came and visited me. I have to kind of hold it together a little bit with this story. And she said to him, I wouldn't want that to happen to anyone. And they connected in that situation. Something happened and they became better friends. And a short time later, um, I think about a year or two later, she was the main proponent of a bill that was going through Congress that was, I think, to raise the minimum wage. And they were having problems with the uh, Southern congressman. And she talked to George Wallace and he intervened with a lot of those congressmen in the bill passed. And some of you also know that I think he died about 1996, but in the last 10 or 15 years of his life, maybe before that, I think, I think quite a, a large part of the rest of his life, he renounced his, he renounced his past. He renounced the kind of racist stance that he had taken. He called it that. And he was part of um, a sort of cooperative efforts to build reconciliation. Now, it's hard to know cause and effect, but it's also not hard to think that that, that one moment, which was in a way a moment of metta, had a huge impact. in a way brought about major change, just that. And I don't think that she rehearsed anything or planned it. It was just a very natural expression. Probably from, in a way, practicing her own version of metta over the years. So we do this practice perhaps because, for some of us at least, I speak for myself, we don't have 
necessarily a natural metta that's just totally always accessible. So we need to practice. Some of, us, some of you may have that. You say, okay, enough of this metta. It just comes out naturally. But um, for many of us, the practice really helps. I know for myself, the practice of metta helps tremendously because I think I was raised to be quite emotional. No, maybe, let me, let me rephrase that. I think I have an emotional nature, but growing up as a man in this culture, um, not so accessible, you know, or it wasn't, let's say it wasn't part of my cultural training. <laughs> To even though it would come out at different times, you know, and and um, and so doing metta practice along with a lot of other ways of opening heart has been really really helpful, you know. And I love the practice, you know. And I love I, I love teaching the week long retreats and really um, having it be um, really a big part of my life. It really, and, and doing sometimes some long periods of metta, which is really shifted consciousness, and I'll talk about that later in the talk. As we do the metta practice, I think that we shift in several ways, and I want to talk for the rest of the evening about several ways that we shift when we do this loving-kindness practice. It really could be said to be how the heart opens or how um, the transformation of the heart occurs. And I want to talk, I'll see if I can get to all these. Um, Maybe some of them I'll I'll talk about briefly. I wanted to talk about four basic ways that the transformation of the heart occurs. One of them is that we learn more and more to lead with our hearts, to have our hearts be accessible and available in our moment-to-moment experience in the way we are in the world, in the way we are with ourselves, in the way we are with others. That we learn better how to lead with the heart. A second kind of change that occurs is that when we do metta practice, we also develop in concentration. I mentioned that earlier today, that it is also a concentration practice, and I'll say some more about that. Thirdly, we engage in a kind of process of purification, As we do the metta practice, we both have access to this deeper quality of care and love. And we also see what stands in the way, much like the mindfulness with the hindrances. We see what stands in the way of that deeper care and love. And then lastly, as we do the loving kindness practice, we, in a way, touch some of our depths. We come closer towards our basic nature. Which in this tradition, and as in so many spiritual traditions, our basic nature is said to be that of love and wisdom and responsiveness and clarity. Different traditions speak of it differently. Talking about the wisdom and compassion as the two wings of the Dharma as a way of saying that. That's who we most basically are. And somehow we, through various processes, personal, familial, cultural, historical, we're not so much in touch with that basic nature. And so we come here to get more in touch in this very sometimes slow process. 
So that sense of leading with the heart, it's really, can I develop further the ability to meet every situation with an open heart? Sylvia, you know, my mentor in metta, sometimes talks about what is metta practice. It's simply asking moment to moment, where is my heart? It's as simple as that. Where is my heart right now? Is it closed? Is it open? If it's closed, can I take a step that opens it a little bit? Can I move in that direction? Where is my heart right now? We learn how to lead. And some of us, as I mentioned, naturally lead with our hearts. We know people like this, probably many of us here. We learned or grew up or founded our nature to be there, to meet a situation <clears throat> more heartfully. And, that, and it was easy. And for some of us, not so. Again, for a multitude of reasons. Some of us tend to lead with our minds. Each of these have their advantages. And some of us tend to sometimes even lead with our bodies, with our, our embodied presence. Some of us lead with our wisdom. Some of us lead with our analytic minds and so forth. And I think one of, one of the ways that I hold uh, the intention for my practice is to be able to, if the situation demands it, to be able to lead with any part of myself. It's really, it's really a sense of integration. It's one of the things that I think can happen with practice. We can learn better to lead with all the different parts of ourselves, if the situation calls for that. And here we're learning to lead with our hearts. And it's something which we find in so many traditions. It's... Um, I think for some Christians, it's a way of understanding the prayer of St. Paul or or the invocation of St. Paul who said, pray ceaselessly. Keep the prayer going. It's really, and in in the um, Russian Orthodox tradition, it was understood as the prayer of the heart. One continually keeps the heart prayer going to keep touch with the heart. Or it might be Gandhi some of you know, in a more devotional practice, continually having the chant, Ram, going. Ram, 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 going in his consciousness all the time. And some of you, I, I know, have done chanting practice at times where, you know, and I have a, one of my dear friends, uh, um, Bonnie, uh, my former, former partner. Um, she does it all day long. She, that's her practice. She's chanting all day long as much as she can. And um, Gandhi had that practice. And so if you've seen the film Gandhi, you know that at the moment that he was shot, all he said was Ram. You can go back and see the film, and it's right at the beginning of the film. He's shot, and he said, you know, I think they translated it as God. It's the name of God, or one of the names of God. And that that's, was his practice. Or I think of... Um, uh, many of you know uh, Julia Butterfly Hill, or know of her. Maybe some of you have met her. She used to live in the Bay Area. And she, she I was very struck. She said, she always asked, is my action coming out of love? That's kind of the spirit of metta. It's a simple practice we can do. And so how do we, how do we learn to lead with the heart? 
we do the metta practice and it really takes us back to our heart moment after moment. And we can bring it into all sorts of situations. I mentioned in talking about the metta practice, a lot of my students do metta while they're driving. You can do metta waiting for public transportation. I like to do metta on uh, the BART system in the Bay Area. Do it at a meeting and so forth. We'll, as we get to the loving kindness for all beings, you'll, you can feel how it's quite wonderful. It's actually, we speak of loving kindness for all beings as the dessert of metta practice because it's very sweet and it comes after the main course. So, um, another example of um, applied metta practice, about four years ago, I did a long metta retreat. I did about five weeks of metta, about um, 18 hours a day for five weeks of this metta practice. I was, I was behind some of my comments that the, the nervous system gets a bit rewired when you do a lot of metta practice. It feels like that. It, it, it feels like there's a groove. It, and it is very much like chanting, like your, your comment, uh, you may. Um, it, felt, it felt like a, a chant. And as I personally, as I did metta practice all day long for many weeks, uh, particularly when I was doing, when I, when I was walking, I felt like my metta practice actually took on a rhythmic and melodic quality. Quite interesting, and that's, it happens sometimes. Sylvia does, uh, has three distinct melodies for her metta. I'm not encouraging you to search out melodies, but for me it just happened in the course of doing it. It's kind of like how when you do meditation sometimes, especially in a retreat setting, one of the beautiful things is the creativity of the process. You know, all these meditation techniques that are in all these books, someone made them up once through creativity. And the same thing is happening, especially, I think, for us who are trying to bring this into ordinary life, not monks or nuns, maybe at the minimum, maybe for a short period, but trying to bring these into novel settings like BART and driving and board meetings and, you know, um, family life and so forth. Uh, we've become very creative. And, and so I found myself uh, having a rhythmic and melodic metta and... Near the end of the retreat, about uh, three days before the retreat was, my retreat was ending, I had some responsibilities in the outside world. And that led me to download some emails that had accumulated during five weeks, which if your email is any like my email, it was not just a few emails. It was about, and nowadays it would be a lot more, but it was 400 emails. I downloaded 400 emails after having done metta for four and a half weeks for 18 hours a day and sat at the computer. And I could do nothing other than do metta with every email. And I, and I worked out a practice, which I still do to this day, when I am looking at an email, I go through a round of four phrases of metta. And then I try to have some metta phrase in my, the body of my email. Usually it's something like, may, may this find you well. A few of you I've emailed you, and you probably know this. I try to vary it with people. I do email a lot so they don't think it's too obnoxious. 
And it's actually, I think I've, I've been told that Sylvia was really interested in this and she wrote a national column on the practice. So I think it's kind of spreading around the country. And some of my friends tell me that they, they're getting suddenly similar email messages with May, I hope this finds you well at the beginning. And they, they attribute it to me. I don't know if that's true. Maybe it's just spontaneous, like-minded practices. I don't know. But it, it developed, and it's a way of leading with the heart in that seemingly challenging medium of the computer, right? Many of us have thought for years, how does practice enter computer life? And necessity brought about some creativity. So we learn to, we learn to lead with the heart. We, 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 learn how to, we learn how to do that. We also develop as we continue our metta practice, we also develop in concentration, you know, as, we, as we've discussed. We become more collected. And I think that it's helpful, and this is true for loving kindness practice as well as for the mindfulness practice and being with the breath. I think it's important to see that I think concentration is not a great translation of the well-known word samadhi. And samadhi is the word in the Pali and Sanskrit languages, and it has more connotations of integration and almost like um, maturity. The etymology is uh, um, Pali and Sanskrit being Indo-European languages, very, some very similar roots as uh, English or other Western languages. Uh, the, the S-A-M in Samadhi is related to our words uh, S-U-M, some summation, summary. It has to do with a kind of completion. Uh, of a, uh, that's why I think that a better translation might be um, summary or collectedness or, or something like that. Um, and I think the, the, literal, the literal meaning is, is more like a gathering of the parts of ourselves. It's a maybe... Maybe the best translation would be something like unification, unification of self or unification of our, of our being. Because when we use the word concentration, sometimes we think it's like this laser-like penetrating you know, ray that somehow strikes the object. And it's kind of a narrow, narrow use of mind. And I know I, my concentration in the beginning was like that. I would kind of use my laser-like mind to, mm, I will penetrate my breath, mm, like that. And it, it took some time to have, to realize that actually I think a more mature concentration doesn't come with so much willpower, but it comes just because concentration in that sense, unification, is a natural state of the mind. And there's a kind of relaxing. As we practice more, we can relax into that concentration. And so metta develops that by the repetition of phrases. Um, there's a beautiful uh, passage in the, in the um, Danish philosopher Kierkegaard where he says, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. And it has to do with some of what comes about when there's this unification, this focus just on one thing over and over again. There's a certain kind of purity that can occur. And when we're distracted, we lose some of that quality of purity of heart or a certain kind of warmth. There's one of the uh, 
great Russian Orthodox uh, monks of the 19th century, he said, um, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. We get distracted. We lose some of that natural quality of heart. It's a reason to be careful about being distracted. We tend to get taken out of our hearts. And so we can work and develop that sense of unification. It's something quite can be quite beautiful about just repeating the same phrases, you know, and so some of you are interested in doing it for more than just the two periods a day. And if you want to, feel, please feel free. This is a uh, chance to do a little bit more loving kindness, or maybe you'd be interested in doing, doing a week, which we offer in January and uh, July. So we develop in... Um, we develop... <clears throat> Whoops, need another one. (laughs) We develop, (laughs) we develop in that unification of mind and heart and we also learn to lead with the heart. When we do metta, we also go through a kind of a purification process. And if some of you don't like the word purification, maybe you can use, maybe use the word transformation. But I'm thinking of purification in two ways. One is we connect with what's deeper in ourselves, with what is really some of the beautiful qualities of heart. We connect more with them. And then we see what stands in the way of that. And I mentioned earlier, I believe, in that when we do the metta retreats, they're probably the broadest range, the widest range of emotions occur. It, it somehow, attend, intending to be loving moment to moment, can sometimes um, bring up stuff, can bring up material that we see. Um, sometimes spontaneously, and in fact, this is a quality that happens generally with meditation retreats. If you're having very intense dreams, has anyone been having some fairly intense dreams? Very natural. Um, people sometimes come to me in interviews and they say, last night I was a murderer. <laughs> was this my true nature? <laughs> you know, or something like that. I say, no, just you know, dreams get intense in retreats. <laughs> Don't worry. And, um, or, you know, I remember when I did my five weeks of metta, one, one morning... I woke up straight in bed, like woke up at three in the morning, sat up straight in bed, eyes bright, and I reviewed my entire relationship history for an hour. (laughs) Some of which wasn't so pleasant, right? And then then it was over and I went back to sleep. (laughs) You know, and these things happen. These things happen in mindfulness retreats. That can happen, you know, with that. There's a kind of a purification that occurs. Things, things, things come up. And there's also a way that we really can connect with this beautiful quality of the heart. Uh, in the Buddhist tradition, metta is often connected with what's called the brightly shining quality of heart and mind. It's said to be luminous. And we can connect more with that. And this really takes me to that last part of the 
uh, talk about how metta transforms us, which is that as we practice metta, we connect more with that deeper nature. We connect more with the, um, the deep heart. And it is said that the, our basic nature, the Buddha said, let me see if I have a passage here. Luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. Those who do not practice do not understand this, and so they don't cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the practitioner really understands. For the practitioner, there is cultivation of the mind and heart. So there's this sense to be this luminous quality and that the, when we uh, work with metta, it's said that the liberation of the, of the mind and the heart by metta shines and glows and radiates like the radiance of the moon. It's in the ancient text. It's said that that's what occurs when we practice with metta. We touch what's deeper. Again, we find that in so many traditions, that sense of the deep heart of caring and love being our most basic nature. But on the way, we we see that which gets in the way of it. You know, so a lot of what we can experience in loving kindness practice is we find our resistance, we find our anger, we find our judgments of ourselves or others can be strong. You know, it can be strong. And we and so it's very natural for that to come up. Metta is a little bit like doing metta practice is a little bit like putting your mind and heart in a washing machine that has a long tumble cycle. but very good detergent. Um, and so we work with all these qualities. We work with, the, we, some of us have seen more clearly that judgmental mind surfacing. You know, it's something that personally I've mentioned a few times that it's been a really important part of my practice to work with the judgmental mind, so much so that I found myself, uh, after doing quite a number of years of work with it personally, starting to teach day-longs here about seven years ago and having quite a response, more than I expected. I had tried to bring together a lot of the uh, different practices around judgments and um, offered a day-long and I thought it went pretty well, but people gather around and said, we want to continue, which doesn't usually happen at day-longs. People just say, very nice, thank you, bye. And they gather around and said, we want to continue and... So I said, okay, come to my house if you want to continue and we'll have an evening. And then at the end of the evening I said, okay, bye. And they said, we want to continue. And I basically had a group for seven years, monthly, on that theme. So much so that just a few weeks ago, and uh, I offered along with my uh, friend Heather Sunberg, we offered a uh, five-day retreat on the theme. A few people here came. I won't mention who or look at them. <laughs> But, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful area. And some of us are noticing those judgments more clearly. They surface, you know, and it can be sobering because it can be very harsh. We have, many of us have very harsh voices and it's a very powerful energy. It's definitely 
among the top two or three issues that people deal with in retreats. And um, very widespread self-judgment, very strong. I think it. I think it's. I think it comes with certain kinds of individuation and actually develop self self-development. I don't think we find it in all cultures. We've been having a certain dialogues around around that sort of the cultural differences, but very strong energy. If you notice that, just keep on noticing it. And there are different practices, and we can. In the individual interviews, we can do some more focused work on that if you wish. But very powerful, very powerful work. We keep noticing. We, what I basically found is that the judgments most basically get transformed by combining mindfulness and a lot of heart practices. You have to have a lot of the heart practices. If you're finding judgments arise in your, your being, bring that spirit of loving kindness to yourself can do a lot of it. You know, it's a really wonderful antidote to, to, the, um, to the energy of judgment. So I think I'll just end with that sense of the loving kindness touching something deeper in us. Maybe I'll tell one story and then read, read a beautiful passage. Um, and the story is from is something that I learned just in the last few weeks. Um, someone whom I know, and some of you may have uh, looked at the work of Rebecca Solnit. Does anyone know her work? Yeah. She, Solnit, S-O-L-N-I-T. She lives in San Francisco, and I've met her. We have a mutual friend, and I've met her quite a number of times. She's written, she's very prolific, very brilliant, somewhat idiosyncratic writer. She's written like 11 books or something. She's in her late 40s. And her most recent book is called A Paradise Built in Hell. And it's about what happens with natural disasters for the most part. What happens with the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco, 1989, different storms. She, also, she includes Katrina in New Orleans. She also includes 9-11, which had, has some of the aspects of being natural, even though, of course, it wasn't natural. It kind of literally came out of the blue, you know. And she looked at these and studied them for a number of years. And what she found is that disasters, when you look carefully, they show us the depths of human nature. What's unexpected is that they most, almost entirely show beauty and love. Contrary to a lot of what we might think, contrary too often what the authorities think. What she found was that people respond amazingly in these crises. A few exceptions, but mostly amazingly. Authorities get nervous because they don't trust the people. And there's a term that she found in what's called disaster sociology called elite panic. But basically, in all these situations, the people take total care of what needs to be taken care of. In other words, something like a caring heart is at the core of our nature, and it comes out in crises very often, these kind of crises at least. And it comes out in spiritual practice. You know, and maybe I'll just read one passage that is quite wonderful. It's from, this is actually from Dorothy Day, who was growing up in Oakland. 
and she was eight years old. She's, some of you know her. She's the founder of Catholic Worker, one of the great, really, saints of the 20th century. Founded Catholic Worker, hospitality houses for the homeless and unemployed. She said, what I remember most plainly about the earthquake was the human warmth and kindness of everyone afterward. For days, refugees poured out of burning San Francisco and camped in Idora Park, which was near her home in Oakland, and the racetrack in Oakland. Mother and all our neighbors were busy from morning to night cooking meals, cooking hot meals. They gave away every extra garment that they possessed. They stripped themselves to the bone in giving, forgetful of the morrow. And she concludes, what the cri- while the crisis lasted, people loved each other. It's really, it's quite, it's quite stunning, you know? And um, what she found was that people respond in that way, but often it didn't come out necessarily in the media because the media tends to have a more negative view. Um, And I think I just want to end with um, another, really another statement of that. Let's see where this is. This is is really as expressed um, by the great Catholic contemplative Thomas Merton who... I had the privilege, I lived in Kentucky for four years. And um, when I lived there, I would go often to the monastery at Gethsemane, a Trappist monastery. And I was part of a group called the Thomas Merton Group that I met about every, well, the group met about every two weeks, and I would go out about every six weeks. I was living in Lexington, Kentucky for four years. I was um, teaching at the University of Kentucky, that's another story. I, I, I taught a great part of the football team, ethics. <laughs> That's, there's, some, there's some other stories there. Maybe they'll come out later. <laughs> but, uh, but in any case, I would go out to the monastery and do retreats there and part of a group. And when I met with, and there were people, there were sisters from the Sisters of Loretto, which was nearby. Um, and they knew I was a Buddhist practitioner. And we never talked about differences of doctrine. Everything was experiential. We talked about how do you deal with fear? What develops courage? What develops clarity? So forth. That's, it was interesting. I, I didn't reflect on it so much at the time, but that's what we talked about. And I was able to be there um, quite often and do retreats and really got to look at a lot of the uh, unpublished manuscripts from Thomas Merton, which was quite, quite wonderful. And... Um, Beautiful, beautiful man who died young um, and had a lot to do with the connection between Western Christian, Jewish um, approaches and, and Asian approaches. He was one of the great bridges between East and West. And he had this very profound experience of touching that depth of heart, which occurred uh, on a, a trip where he was just going to the doctor in Louisville. The the, abbas, uh, the um, monastery of Gethsemane is about 40 miles south of Louisville, if you know that part of the country. And he was just on this uh, doctor's visit, and something just opened. You know, he's been doing practice. You know, at that point, I think he had been there for 15 years, so he's doing a lot of spiritual practice. And he he said, 
Um, this is what he said about this experience where something opened up, and I'll just end with this reading, which is about the spirit of metta. In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separation, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. The whole illusion of a separate holy existence is a dream. Then it was as if, I was sudden, as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts. The depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. The big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. Let's just sit for a while. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.